It was a testing of his affections as to whom he really loved the more, God or Isaac. It was the testing of which was the stronger within him, grace or sin. But supremely, it was a testing of his faith. Cardinal writers see in this incident little more than a severe trial of Abraham's natural affections. It cannot be otherwise, for water never rises above its own level, and carnal men are incapable of discerning spiritual things. But it is to be carefully noted that Hebrews 11 verse 17 does not say, In submission to God's holy will, Abraham offered up Isaac, though that was true, nor out of supreme love for God he offered his son, though that was also the case. Instead, the Holy Spirit declares that it was by faith that the patriarch acted, declaring, He that hath received the promises offered up his only begotten Son. Most of the modern commentators, filled with fleshly sentiment rather than with the Holy Spirit, completely miss this point which is the central beauty of our verse. Let us seek then to attend unto it the more particularly. In calling upon Abraham to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering, the Lord submitted his faith to a fiery ordeal. Also, because God's promises to Abraham concerning his seed centered in Isaac, and in bidding him slay his only son, he appeared to contradict himself. Ishmael had been cast out, and Isaac's posterity alone was to be reckoned to Abraham as the blessed seed among whom God would have his church. Isaac had been given to Abraham after he had long gone childless, and when Sarah's womb was dead, therefore there was no likelihood of his having any more sons by her. At the time, Isaac himself was childless, and to kill him looked like cutting off all his hopes. How then could Abraham reconcile the divine command with the divine promise? To sacrifice his son and heir was not only contrary to his natural affections, but opposed to carnal reason as well. In like manner, God tests the faith of his people today. He calls upon them to perform acts of obedience which are contrary to their natural affections and which are opposed to carnal reason. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16.24 How many a Christian has had his or her affections drawn out toward a non-Christian, and then has come to them that piercing word, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Second Corinthians 6 verse 14 How many a child of God has had his membership in a church where he saw that Christ was dishonored? To heed that divine command, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.17 entailed leaving behind those near and dear in the flesh, but the call of God could not be disregarded 
no matter how painful obedience to it might be. But when are we put to such a trial as to offer up our Isaac? To this question, the Puritan Manton returned a threefold answer. First, in the case of submission to the strokes of providence, when near relations are taken away from us. God knows how to strike us in the right vein. There will be the greatest trial where our love is set. Second, in case of self-denial, forsaking our choicest interests for a good conscience, we must not only part with mean things, but such as we prize above anything in the world. When God requires it, as he did with the writer, that we should forsake father and mother, we must not demur. Nay, our lives should not be dear unto us. Acts 20, verse 24. Third, in mortifying our bosom loss, this is what is signified by cutting off a right hand or plucking out a right eye. Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Let us notice the time when Abraham was thus tested. The Holy Spirit has emphasized this in Genesis 22, 1, by saying, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. A double reference seems to be made in these words. First, a general one to all the preceding trials which Abraham had endured, his journey to Canaan, his journeying there in tents, the long, long wait for the promised heir, now that he had passed through a great fight of afflictions, he is called upon to suffer a yet severer test. Ah, God educates his people little by little as they grow in grace, harder tasks are assigned them, and deeper waters are called upon to be passed through, that enlarged opportunities may be afforded for manifesting their increased faith in God. It is not the raw recruit, but the scarred veteran who is assigned a place in the front ranks of the battle. Think it not strange, then, fellow Christian, if thy God is now appointing thee severer tests than he did some years ago. Second. A more specific reference is made in Genesis 22.1 to what is recorded in the previous chapter, the miraculous birth of Isaac, the great feast that Abraham made when he was weaned, verse 8, and the casting out of Ishmael, verse 14. The cup of the patriarch's joy was now full. His outlook seemed most promising. Not a cloud appeared on the horizon. Yet it was then, like a heavy clap of thunder out of a clear sky, that the most trying test of all came upon him. Yes, and so it was just after God had pronounced Job a perfect man and an upright, that he delivered all that he had into Satan's hands. Job 1 verses 8 and 12. So too it was when Paul had been wrapped to the third heaven, when he received such abundance of revelations that there was given him a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet him. Second Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 7. 
how we need to seek grace that we may be enabled to hold everything down here with a light hand. Rightly did an old writer say, Build not thy nest on any earthly tree, for the whole forest is doomed to be cut down. It is not only for God's glory, but for our own good that we set our affections upon things above. And in view of what has just been before us, how necessary it is that we should expect and seek and advance to be prepared for severe trials. Are we not bidden to hear for the time to come? Isaiah 42.23 The more we calmly anticipate future trials, the less likely are we to be staggered and overcome by them when they arrive. Beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. First Peter 4, verse 12 Having observed the time when Abraham was tested, let us now consider the severity of his trial. And first the act itself. Abraham was ordered to slay not all his bullocks and herds, but a human being and that not one of his faithful servants, but his beloved son. Abraham was bidden not to banish him from home or send him out of Canaan, but to cut him off out of the land of the living. He was commanded to do a thing for which no reason could be assigned save the authority of him who gave the command. He was bidden to do that which was most abhorrent to natural feeling. He must not only consent unto the death of his dear Isaac, but himself be his executioner. He was to slay one who was guilty of no crime, but who, according to the divine record, was an unusually dutiful, loving, and obedient child. Was ever such a demand made upon a human creature before or since? Second, consider the offerer. In our text he is presented in a particular character. He that had received the promises, which is the key clause to the verse. God had declared unto Abraham that he would establish an everlasting covenant with Isaac and with his seed after him. Genesis 17.9 Isaac and none other was the seed by whose posterity Canaan should be possessed. Genesis 12.7 It was through him that all nations should be blessed. Genesis 17.7 And therefore it must be through him that Christ, according to the flesh, would proceed. These promises Abraham had received. He had given credit for them, firmly believed them, fully expected their performance. Now, the accomplishment of those promises depended upon the preservation of Isaac's life, at least until he had a son, and to sacrifice him now appeared to render them all null and void, making their fulfillment impossible. He that had received the promises, Manton wrote, which noteth not only the revelation of the promises, 
concerning a numerous issue and the Messiah to come of his loins, but the entertaining of them and cordial assent to them. He received them not only as a private believer, but as a free offer in trust for the use of the church. In the first ages of the world, God had some eminent persons who received a revelation of his will in the name of the rest. This was Abraham's case, and he is here viewed not only as a father, a loving father, but as one who had received the promises as a public person and father of the faithful, the person whom God had chosen in whom to deposit the promises. End of quote. Herein lay the spiritual acuteness of the trial. Would he not, in slaying Isaac, be faithless to his trust? Would he not by his own act place the gravestone on all hope for the fulfillment of such promises? Forcibly did Matthew Henry, when commenting upon the time at which Abraham received this trying command from God, say, After he had received the promises that this Isaac should build up his family, and that in him his seed should be called, Hebrews 11.18, and that he should be one of the progenitors of the Messiah and all nations blessed in him, so that in being called to offer up his Isaac, he seemed to be called to destroy and cut off his own family, to cancel the promises of God, to prevent the coming of Christ, to destroy the whole truth, to sacrifice his own soul and his hope of salvation, to cut off the church of God at one blow, a most terrible trial. Unquote. If Isaac were slain, then all seemed to be lost. It may be asked, but why should God thus try the faith of the patriarch? For Abraham's own sake, that he might the better know the efficacy of that grace which God had bestowed upon him as the suspending of a heavy weight upon a chain reveals either its weakness or its strength, so God places His people in varied circumstances which manifest the state of their hearts, whether or no their trust be really in Him. The Lord tried Hezekiah to show unto him his frailty. Second Chronicles 32.31 He tried Job to show that though he slew him, Yet would he trust in God. Second, for the sake of others, that Abraham might be an example to them. God had called him to be the father of the faithful, and therefore would he show unto all generations of his children what grace he had conferred upon him, what a worthy father or pattern he was. This was condensed from William Gouge. In like manner, God tries his people today and puts to the proof the grace which he has communicated to their hearts, this both for his own glory and for their own comfort. The Lord is determined to make it manifest that he has on earth a people who will forsake any comfort and endure any misery rather than forego their plain duty who love him better than their own lives, and who are prepared to trust him in the dark. So too we are the gainers, for 
we never have clearer proof of the reality of grace than when we are under sore trials. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, Romans 5, 3 and 4, as another has said, by knocking upon the vessel, we see whether it is full or empty, cracked or sound, so by these knocks of providence we are discovered. Unquote. Rightly did John Owen point out, trials are the only touchstone of faith, without which men must want, lack, the best evidence of its sincerity and efficacy, and the best way of testifying it unto others. Wherefore, we ought not to be afraid of trials because of the admirable advantages of faith in and by them. Unquote. Yea, the word of God goes farther and bids us, Count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations or trials, declaring that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James 1, verses 2-4 to four. So too, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In conclusion, let us observe how Abraham conducted himself under the sore trial. Many instructive details concerning this are recorded in Genesis 22. There it will be found that Abraham consulted not with Sarah, why should he, when he already knew God's will on the matter? Nor was there any disputing with God as to the apparently flagrant discrepancy between his present command and his previous promises. Nor was there any delay. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Genesis 22.3 And how is his unparalleled action to be accounted for? From what superfleshly principle did it spring? A single word gives the answer. Faith. Not a theoretical faith, not a mere head knowledge of God, but a real, living, spiritual triumphant faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. By faith in the divine justice and wisdom behind the command, so to act. By faith in the veracity and faithfulness of God to make good his own promises. Fully assured that God was able to fulfill his word, Abraham closed his eyes to all difficulties and steadfastly counted upon the power of him that cannot lie. This is the very nature or character of a spiritual faith. It persuades a soul of God's absolute supremacy 
unerring wisdom, unchanging righteousness, infinite love, almighty power. In other words, it rests upon the character of the living God and trust Him in the face of every obstacle. Spiritual faith makes its favorite possessor judge that the greatest suffering is better than the least sin. Yea, it unhesitatingly avows, Thy loving kindness is better than life. Psalm 63, verse 3 We must leave for our next chapter the consideration of the remainder of our passage. But in view of what has already been before us, is not both writer and reader constrained to cry unto God, Lord, have mercy upon me, pardon my vile unbelief, and graciously subdue its awful power. Be pleased for Christ's sake to work in me that spiritual and supernatural faith which will honor thee and bear fruits to thy glory. And if thou hast in thy discriminating grace already communicated to me this precious, precious gift, then graciously deign to strengthen it by the power of thy Holy Spirit, call it forth into more frequent exercise and action. Amen. Chapter 11 The Faith of Abraham Part 2 Hebrews 11, 17-19 Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Romans 6, verse 13 The Lord has an absolute claim upon us, upon all that we have. As our Maker and Sovereign, He has the right to demand from us anything He pleases, and whatsoever He requires, we must yield. First Chronicles 29, verse 11 All that we have comes from Him and must be held for Him and at His disposal. 1 Chronicles 29.14 The Christian is under yet deeper obligations to part with anything God may ask from Him. Loving gratitude for Christ and His so great salvation must loosen our hold on every cherished temporal thing. The bounty of God should encourage us to surrender freely whatever He calls for, for none ever lose by giving up anything to God. Yet powerful as are these considerations to any renewed mind, the fact remains that they move us not until faith is an exercise. Faith it is which causes us to yield to God, respond to His claims, and answer His calls. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Hebrews 11, 17-19 The Apostle's purpose in citing this remarkable incident was to show that it is the property of faith to carry its possessor through the greatest trials with a cheerful submission and acceptable obedience to the will of God.
in order to make this clearer unto the reader, let us endeavor to exhibit the powerful influence which faith has to support the soul under and carry it through testings and trials. First, faith judgeth of all things aright. It impresses us with a sense of the uncertainty and fleetingness of earthly things and causes us to highly esteem invisible and heavenly things. Faith is a spiritual prudence opposed not only to ignorance but also to folly. So much unbelief as we have, so much folly is ours. O fools and slow of heart to believe. Luke 24.25 Faith is a spiritual wisdom teaching us to value the favor of God, the smiles of His countenance, the comforts of heaven. It shows us that all outward things are nothing in comparison with inward peace and joy. Carnal reason prizes the concernment of the present life and grasps at its riches and honors, senses occupied with fleshly pleasures. But faith knows thy loving kindness is better than life. Psalm 63, verse 3. Second, faith solves all riddles and doubts when we are in a dilemma. What a problem confronted Abraham. What, shall I offer Isaac and bring to naught God's promises, or must I disobey him on the other side? Faith removed the difficulty, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Faith believes the accomplishment of the promise, whatever reason and sense may say to the contrary. It cuts the knot by a resolute dependence upon the power and fidelity of God. Faith casts down carnal imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against God and brings into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Third, Faith is a grace which looks to future things, and in the light of their reality, the hardest trials seem nothing. Senses occupied only with things present, and thus to nature it appears troublesome and bitter to deny ourselves. But the language of faith is, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Second Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 Faith looks within the veil, and so has a mighty influence to support the soul in time of trial. He who walks in the light of eternity goes calmly and happily along through the mists and fogs of time. Neither the frowns of men nor the blandishments of the world affect him, for he has a ravishing and affecting sight of the glorious inheritance to which he is journeying. Fourth, faith worketh by love. Galatians 5, 6, and then nothing is too near and dear to us if the relinquishing of them will glorify God. Faith not only looks forward, but backward. 
It reminds the soul of what great things God has done for us in Christ. He has given us His beloved Son, and He is worth infinitely more than all we can give to Him. Yes, faith apprehends the wondrous love of God in Christ and says, If He gave the darling of His bosom to die for me, shall I stick at any little sacrifice? If God gave me Christ, shall I deny Him my Isaac? I love Him well, but I love God better. Thus faith works, urging the soul with the love of God that we may, out of thankfulness to Him, part with those comforts which He requires of us. Of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, Hebrews 11:18. This was brought in by the Apostle to show wherein lay the greatest obstacle before Abraham's faith. First he was called on to offer up his son and heir. Second, and this after he had received the promises. Third, not Ishmael, but his only begotten or well-beloved Isaac. This is the force of the expression. It is a term of endearment, as John 1.18 and 3.16 show. Fourth, he must slay the one from whom the Messiah himself was to issue. For this is clearly the meaning of the divine promise recorded in verse 18. Long ago, John Owen called attention to the fact that the Socinians, Unitarians, Reduce God's promise to Abraham unto two heads. First, that of a numerous posterity, and second, that this posterity should inhabit and enjoy the land of Canaan as an inheritance. But this, as he pointed out, directly contradicts the apostle, who in Hebrews 11.39 affirms that when they had possessed the land of Canaan, almost unto the utmost period of its grant unto them, had not received the accomplishment of the promises. We wish our modern dispensationalists would ponder that verse. While it is true that the numerous posterity of Abraham and their occupancy of Canaan were both means and pledges of the fulfillment of the promise, yet Acts 2, 38 and 39, and Galatians 3, 16, make it unmistakably plain that the subject matter of the promise was Christ himself with the whole work of his mediation for the redemption and salvation of his church. Of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. This divine promise is first found in Genesis 21.12 and the occasion of God's giving it unto Abraham supplies us with another help towards determining its significance. In the context there, we find that the Lord had given orders for the casting out of Hagar and her son, and we read, And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Genesis 21:11. Then it was to console his stricken heart, that Jehovah said unto his friend, Grieve not over Hagar, son, for I will give thee one who is better than a million Ishmaels. I will give thee a son from whom shall descend none other than 
the promised Savior and Redeemer. And now Abraham was called upon to slay him who was the marked out progenitor of the Messiah. No ordinary faith was called for here. Who can doubt but that now Abraham was sorely pressed by Satan? Would he not point out how inconsistent God was? As he frequently will to us, if we are foolish enough to listen to his vile accusations, would he not appeal to his sentiments and say, How will Sarah regard you when she learns that you have killed and reduced to ashes the child of her old age? Would he not seek to persuade Abraham that God was playing with him, that he did not really mean to be taken seriously, that he could not be so cruel as to require a righteous father to be the executioner of his own dutiful son? In the light of all that is revealed of our great enemy in Holy Writ, and in view of our own experience of his fiendish assaults, who can doubt but what Abraham now became the immediate object of Satan's attack? Ah, nothing but a mind that was stayed upon the Lord could have then resisted the devil and performed a task which was so difficult and painful. John Brown wrote, He had been weak in faith. He would have doubted whether two revelations apparently inconsistent could come from the same God, or if they did, whether such a God ought to be trusted and obeyed. But being strong in faith, he reasoned in this way, This is plainly God's command. I have satisfactory evidence of that, and therefore, It ought to be immediately and implicitly obeyed. I know him to be perfectly wise and righteous, and what he commands must be right. Obedience to this command does indeed seem to throw obstacles in the way of the fulfillment of a number of promises which God has made to me. I am quite sure that God has made those promises. I am quite sure that he will perform them. How he is to perform them, I cannot tell. That is his province, not mine. It is his to promise, and mine to believe. His to command, and mine to obey. End of quote. The incident we are now considering shows us again that faith has to do not only with the promises of God, but with his precepts as well. Yet, this is the central thing which is here set before us. Abraham had been strong in faith when God had declared he should have a son by his aged wife, Romans 4.20, not being staggered by the seemingly insurmountable difficulty that stood in the way, and now he was strong in faith when God bade him slay his son, refusing to be deterred by the apparently unmovable obstacle which his act would interpose before his receiving the seed through Isaac. Ah, dear reader, make no mistake upon this point. A faith which is not as much and as truly engaged with the precepts as it is with the promises of God is not the faith of Abraham and therefore is not the faith of God's elect. Spiritual faith does not pick and choose 
it fears God as well as loves Him. As the promises are not believed with a lively faith unless they draw off our hearts from the carnal vanities to seek that happiness which they offer us, so the commandments are not believed rightly unless we be fully resolved to acquiesce in them as the only rule to guide us in the obtaining of that happiness and to adhere to and obey them. The psalmist declared, I have believed thy commandments. Chapter 119, verse 66, he recognized God's authority behind them. There was a readiness of heart to hear his voice in them. There was a determination of will for his actions to be regulated by them. So it was with Abraham, and so it must be with us, if we would furnish proof that he is our father. If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. John 8, verse 39. God's word is not to be taken piecemeal by us, but received into our hearts as a whole. Every part must affect us and stir up dispositions in us which each several part is suited to produce. If the promises stir up comfort and joy, The commandments must stir up love, fear, and obedience. The precepts are a part of divine revelation. The same word which calls upon us to believe in Christ as an all-sufficient Savior also bids us to believe the commandments of God for the molding of our hearts and the guiding of our ways. There is a necessary connection between the precepts and the promises for The latter cannot do us good until the former be heeded. Our consent to the law precedes our faith in the gospel. God's commands are not grievous. 1 John 5.3 Christ must be accepted as lawgiver before he becomes our redeemer. Isaiah 33 verse 22 How the readiness of Abraham to sacrifice his son condemns those who oppose God's commands and will not sacrifice their wicked and filthy lusts. Whosoever he be of you, says Christ, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 33, by which he meant, until he does in heart sincerity and resolute endeavor turn away from all that stands in competition for our affections with the Lord Jesus, he cannot become a Christian. See Isaiah 55, 7. In vain do we claim to be saved if the world still rules our hearts. Divine grace not only delivers from the wrath to come, but even now it effectually teaches its recipients to deny all ungodliness and worldly lusts that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2, verse 12. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, Hebrews 11:19. Here we learn what was the immediate object of Abraham's faith on this occasion, namely, the mighty power of God. He was fully assured that the Lord would work a miracle rather than fail of his promise. 
Ah, my brethren, it is by meditating upon God's sufficiency that the heart is quieted and faith is established. In times of temptation, when the soul is heavy with doubts and fears, great relief may be obtained by pondering the divine attributes, particularly God's omnipotency. His almighty power is a special prop to faith. The faith of saints has in all ages been much strengthened hereby. Thus it was with the three Hebrews, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Daniel 3.17 With God all things are possible. Mark 10.27 He is able to make good His word, though all earth and hell seem to make against it. Here, too, we see exhibited another of faith's attributes, namely, the committal of events unto God. Carnal reason is unable to rest until a solution is in sight, until it can see a way out of its difficulties. But faith spreads the need before God, rolls the burden upon Him, and calmly leaves the solution to Him. Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Proverbs 16.3 When this is truly done by faith, we are eased of many tossings of mind and agitations of soul that would otherwise distress us. So here Abraham committed the event unto God, reckoning on his power to raise Isaac again, though he should be killed. This is the very nature of spiritual faith, to refer our case unto Him and wait calmly and expectantly for the promised deliverance, though we can neither perceive nor imagine the manner in which it shall be brought about. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring to pass. Psalm 37, verse 5 Oh, how little... Faith is an exercise among the professing people of God today, occupied almost wholly with the rising tide of evil in the world, with the rapid spread of Romanism, with the apostasy of Protestantism. The vast majority of those now bearing the name of Christ conclude that we are facing a hopeless situation. Such people seem to be ignorant of the history of the past, both in Old Testament times and at different periods of this dispensation, things have been far worse than they now are. Moreover, such trembling pessimists leave out God. Is not He able to cope with the present situation? A hesitating yes may be given, at once nullified by the query, but where is the promise that He will do so? Where? By an Isaiah 59.19 When the enemy shall come in like a flood, has he not already done so? The Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. But who believes it? Ah, my Christian reader, ponder thoughtfully that blessed affirmation of him that cannot lie, and then bow the head in shame for thine unbelief. Everything in the world may seem to lie dead against the fulfillment of 
many a divine promise. Yet no matter how dark and dreadful the outlook appears, the Church of God on earth today is not facing nearly so critical and desperate a situation as did the father of the faithful when he had his knife at the breast of him on whose one life the accomplishment of all the promises did depend. Yet he rested in the faithfulness and power of God to secure his own veracity, and so may we do also at this present juncture. He who responded to the faith of sorely tried Abraham, to the faith of Moses when Israel stood before the Red Sea, to the three Hebrews when cast in Babylon's furnace, will to ours if we really trust him. Forsake then your newspapers, brethren. Get ye to your knees and pray expectantly for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Man's extremity is always God's opportunity. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, this supplies an interesting sidelight on the spiritual intelligence of the patriarchs. The Old Testament saints were very far from being as ignorant as some of our superficial moderns suppose. Erroneous conclusions have often been drawn from the silence of Genesis on various matters. The later books of Scripture frequently supplement the concise accounts supplied on the earlier ones. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.